Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through his word. Be blessed. All right. Well, let's get started. Uh, Hey, guys, Pastor Jim here. Thanks for tuning in. We're doing an audio-only version of this one because of the location, which is in Birmingham, Alabama, with our friend Scott. And Scott has worked with various groups across the world, uh, engaged in the the process of helping to disciple and uh, invest in the lives of believers. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what that has looked like? Well, Pastor Jim, welcome to Birmingham. I know it's a second home for you. Yep. Well, we've been overseas since 1997, and it's been a joy to work overseas with believers that have faith in Yeshua, faith in Christ. Yeshua is the Hebrew word for Jesus. To see people come to faith from all kinds of different backgrounds and involved in discipleship, involved with the body of Christ overseas, it's just been a wonderful thing and experience. It's never been a sacrifice. It's always been a joy. So I'm excited to be here with you today and just to talk about whatever you would like to talk about. Well, we were together in a minister's meeting recently, and I brought up a study that I had read by George Barnum. He was working with, uh, I believe it's Arizona Christian University, and this study, which is at it's 11 individual essays, I think at this point, uh, or reports, I'm not sure what they would call them, talking about faith among those ages 20 to 39. So I think that is technically encompasses more than one generation. So it's not as simple as just saying, well, millennials, because it's actually portions of millennials and what they're calling uh, Gen Z. But uh, the thing that really struck me about the information that was coming out was that 60% of those in that age group claim to be Christians, while less than 2% identify with what we would consider to be six moral truths of the faith. And those are that Jesus lived a sinless life, that God is all-powerful, salvation is a gift from God, that Satan or the enemy, the deceiver, is real, Uh, a Christian has a responsibility to share their faith, and that the Bible is accurate in all its teachings. And that was something that really blew me away, and we're getting ready to jump into a series on this. So I brought it up in the minister's meeting, and Scott was just talking about the the Christian faith and the church from a perspective outside of the United States, and some of the things that he was saying were really encouraging to me and were giving me a really interesting perspective. So I asked him if we could do this meeting. So So you've been engaged in the church overseas for 20 years, and you have worked to be able to, I guess, I'm trying to think about the right language here, you've been a part of watching people get saved. I mean, you know, the transition from whatever their belief system was to that of ultimate biblical truth. And you guys have some safeguards that you have implemented in that process 
as people become believers from the perspective of, I guess, becoming a believer, baptism, you know, the acceptance of faith, all of that. I would just love to talk about your perspective on, and we don't have to cover all six of these in specific detail, but I guess, first of all, do you feel like that these six moral truths that were listed here are relevant to uh, the Christian faith? Oh, most definitely. I think the uh, last one is the foundational piece. The the Bible is accurate in all of its teachings. Once that is abandoned within the body of Christ, then all the other ones will be compromised slowly. They will be compromised in time. If you If you look at these six and other ones, it does not surprise me that in America that these truths are being abandoned. It's the uh, natural result of questioning the Bible, the Bible not being authoritative. And if you went back a hundred years into Europe, say back in the 1920s, early 1930s, all of these basic truths of our faith were being abandoned. Not going off too far, but Europe had become a Darwinist society. And so the Word of God was uh, being questioned on every level. And so a lot of the things that we saw develop in Europe are what we're dealing with today, because we're post-Christian. We've been post-Christian for some time. Now, the outside world looks at us as Christian, but we're really a pantheistic society. And as we are overseas, without naming the country, uh, we've been ministering for many years in that context, in a pantheistic society. And a pantheistic society is that all is God, all roads lead to God. There are not moral absolutes. Everything is relative. And so when we look at the ethical system of a pantheistic society, you're not supposed to judge anybody of their behavior, their background, and you're supposed to accept everyone. The only one that is not accepted is the person that believes there's one God, one Lord, one salvation, one way to God, and they believe in biblical absolutes. And as America is pantheistic, and I also believe this, I would say this, Pastor Jim, it's a natural outflow of a Darwinistic society, is that, that everything becomes relative. I was going to ask you that. Can you, you use that term, uh, Darwinistic society? Could you uh, break that down for us? I, I've been doing a bit of research. I'm blown away at how quickly Karl Marx and Charles Darwin's writings were blindly accepted and just seem to have radically changed the minds of, of people. Um, right. Well, say Darwinism had a different worldview of how this world began, about viewing individuals, and, the, and basically it's a destruction of the book of Genesis. And once Genesis is destroyed and you are proposing a different worldview of how everything came into existence, now all of these were theories but today they're taught as facts. Even though Darwinists today are not Darwinists, they're neo-Darwinists. Darwinism is that gradual change took place within the human race, within creation, over millions and millions of years. Right. And Darwinism today, because the fossil record doesn't support that, they believe in sudden change over millions and millions of years. But it's a destruction of our biblical worldview of how God created everything. 
and how he created and the time frame in which he created it. All of that started to be questioned and taught against. And therefore, if you destroy Genesis, the whole Bible falls apart. Yeah, that's good. And these were theories upon theories upon theories that are accepted as facts today, that this is science, that an explosion could create order and that nothing could create something. It's based upon two philosophies that are unscientific. However, it is accepted as scientific today. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm an advocate for true science. And the reason I say it that way, and of course it always triggers somebody when you say that because you know they want to say, well, all science is true science. And I think that there's a lot of convenient science. And what I mean by that, I mean, we can just take abortion as a conversation piece and we can listen to the science of the fact that it's not a living being, it's just, you know, cells and matter and until it is born. And then then we begin to want to have the conversation, well, maybe abortion should be okay post-birth, right? Well, because it's not really a baby still, even though it's been born. And so convenient science is, well, I'm going to use scientific definitions that work for what I want today. And unfortunately, that's why we have the scientific method is we go from right. theory to test, and then we go, oh, that didn't work. That was not true. And then we go back to theory. And what I think drives a lot of these, uh, uh, the language you used, uh, Darwin, what was it? Neo-Darwinism. Neo-Darwinist crazy is that so much of science just lines up with the word of God. Just, yes. So you're, you're using the word pantheistic. Yes. Uh, but let me that. say one, yeah. one thing about what you were mentioning. Yet I'm intellectually honest to say that my belief in a biblical worldview is based upon faith. Right. And I understand that. Yet I believe science lines up more with that biblical worldview from a scientific standpoint, but it's still based upon faith right. and my relationship with God. They are not intellectually honest because it takes more faith to believe the theories that they have presented to our children or the young generation, yet they say it's scientific, but it is based upon faith. Right. And they cannot scientifically prove these theories. And both of the origins of, I think, what I would say are probably the two most influential writers of this thing, Karl Marx and Charles Darwin, were both advocates for eugenics. They were racists. Uh, yes. And that's all kind of like, oh, we'll just kind of hide that behind the uh, curtain here as we take the, the good from their theories and move on. It was uh, Werner Heisenberg. He said, the first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will turn you into an atheist, but at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. Wow. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, he was the father of quantum mechanics right. and saying that, you know, when you get into the community at the very beginning, there's all these non-believers and based on all these theories, but once you really move past the theories and start moving into actually a, actual applied evidentiary sciences and mathematics, you know, yes. I've heard many scientists in my life tell me that, yeah, I, I got far enough down the rabbit hole, I was like, no, 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 right. no, there's no accidents here. And what, one of the things that if you study history, all these isms, Marxism, fascism, socialism, are the natural response to a Darwinistic society yeah. that treats that w- us as no more than an animal, but we're at the top of the animal kingdom. You look at Nazism, which was fascism, which was not a philosophy on the right. That was one of the biggest it's thefts still, in history. It was a leftist 
philosophy. It was, and it's funny because you know you you'll say, well, it's just socialism and racism combined, and you know people go, no, 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 just because they said they were socialist doesn't make them socialist. It was like, no, you're right, that doesn't. But everything they wrote about, all of their applied government yes. structures and economic structures. We're socialists. So yes. you're right. Them saying that they're socialists doesn't make them socialists. What made them socialists was the applied efforts that they made combined with their form of racism. Yes. And if you look at Nazism, it was a product of Darwinism. Yeah. That's historical fact. It's in their own writings. Yeah. It's in the interviews that you had with the soldiers of Nazi Germany. And it goes on and on of that society and, and their view of the handicapped. The view of lesser races, the Slavics, the uh, non-Europeans, the Jewish people, uh, the gypsies, you know, those could be eliminated. And they actually thought it was for the betterment of the human race that is at the top of the animal kingdom. And so these were natural products are philosophies that came out of a non-biblical worldview. So how has that infiltrated our church? How can somebody say, I'm a Christian? And because this is really the meat of my concern right now is that somebody would go, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe, you know, for instance, that the, the Bible is accurate and that birthing out of the acceptance of these fringe science ideas. How, how has the church become so complacent to that? Right. Let me back up just okay. a little bit to try to tie in pantheism. Okay. In a Darwinistic society, a secular society, religion is looked down on as a crutch. Mm-hmm. And something almost, when you get into Marxism and fascism, socialism, religion is used as a tool to oppress people. So religion comes under attack that's not pantheistic. Mm-hmm. Pantheistic is okay, uh, that you have your truth, I have my truth. As long as you're not trying to put your truth on me, as long as it's relative and as long as it's not something that is binding upon me, that leads to pantheistic ethics, a pantheistic society, that all roads lead to God, and they're very compatible. What is not compatible with these other worldviews is me as a believer that says, no, the Bible is the word of God. This is the way we live our lives. This is how the world was created. This is salvation. This is what separates you from God. Sin separates you from God. And there's only one salvation, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, that becomes a problem for that worldview. Mm -hmm. And the anger that builds up in a pantheistic society, say in Asia, is the same anger that you see today in America. When we start looking at all these philosophies, they're really coming out of a, a non-biblical worldview. The important thing for us today as the body of Christ in America is to get back to the Word of God, teaching the Word of God within context, within original intent, and allowing the Word of God to freely be proclaimed and taught again. And then you're not going to see all of this blending. The blending is part of a pantheistic society. Because you have to accept me because I have this view, I was born this way, and how dare you call this sin? So you're to what? Love me. 
you're to accept me. Love is is understood as acceptance. Right. And so the evangelical church today is starting to incorporate pantheistic ethics. Right. I remember when I was in Bible college, our professors were doing a series of lectures, and this was school-wide, on the coming philosophy of the postmodern mindset, which is this rings, the things you're saying remind me a lot of the things they were warning of during my time in school. And so, and that was, you know, 20 plus years ago. I have to admit in this that I have found myself initially being influenced in some of these ideas that it took a while for me to, it really took me being in the word and being responsible for being in the word to untangle some of the mess that was set into my mind and not from school, but from following the teachings of celebrity pastors. I mean, if we just want to get for real, right. when Rob Bell came on the scene, you know, with his NUMA videos, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but yes. I, I followed his stuff. But I, I remember before his book, or it might have been right when his book Love Wins came out and this whole hyperculture of, you know, love everyone though unconditionally that, you know, this acceptance is love right. philosophy that he had made this reference to the Holy Spirit and used the gender pronoun she or her. And it hit me so weird. And I told my wife, I was like, I think he just referenced the Holy Spirit you know, in this female, you know, use of a pronoun, that actually triggered something inside of me to go to the Word and find out if that was accurate or inaccurate, if that was acceptable. And of course, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. You you know a lot more about it than I do. But one of the things I discovered is, is that the Hebrew language, and if I'm saying this incorrectly, please set it right for people who are listening. It's not even, it's not just like English. There's actually a masculine and feminine essence on just words in general a lot of times. So like not just pronouns. And so what you don't find is anything except for a masculine form of the Holy Spirit of God. And that started causing me to have some, ask some questions like what's, what's going on here? But I'm looking right now at what's being taught and said, you know, about being, well, we're just broken people and we just need to love everybody. And I'm thinking like, I don't, I don't parent that way. I don't tell right. my kids when they when they are catch one of my kids stealing. I right. don't go, oh man, that's just that's coming from somewhere broken inside, and I accept you. You know, it's like we're not doing that. Like you've got to go and face the music on this. You know? Right. And it was a, just so anybody's wondering, like which kid stole what? Uh, yeah. I had one of my kids steal some Legos one time, and we went and made it right, and it was a life lesson. But I think that was love dealing with it, not ignoring it. Right. And let me, I have to say this, Pastor Jim, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Well. So all my friends that are out there, especially in certain countries, they know. You know a lot more than I do, though. Well, but that doesn't mean that I know a (laughs) lot. (laughs) Okay, 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 okay. But when we look at this mentality that has come in, and I want to say something about judging. Yeah. Biblically, we're not to judge in the context of hypocrisy, and we're not to judge in the context of condemning. The law of God already condemns the world, that it is sinful. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And so how do I judge as a parent? How do I judge within the body of Christ? If you take 1 Corinthians 5, Paul asks the question, Aren't we to judge within the body? We don't judge outside of the body. Why? It's already judged. Oh, that's good. 
So how do I judge within the, in, within the body of Christ? How do I judge within my own family? I have a, a daughter or a son that's n- not doing right. I'm not judging them to condemn them. I'm judging what they're doing is wrong. The action is wrong. And by being silent with the action, I can never help them. But if my daughter is stealing and she's developing a habit and I'm seeing this going on, I love her. And out of that, I judge what she is doing. And I judge not in the sense of hypocrisy. She might be getting it from me. She sees that I'm cheating on my taxes. I'm doing these kind of things. First, get the log out of my own eye. Then I can see my daughter and help her with her little, what is it, kleptomaniac mentality that's developing. And to help her and to set the right standards because I know that that action is sinful and it can become a lifestyle. And in the end, it will destroy her, destroy her marriage, destroy her future, destroy everything in the future. What type of parent would I be to say, oh, I'm just going to tolerate you, love you, so I'm not going to speak to it? That's right. That's what we're doing within the body of Christ. And we're using this, don't judge me. And it's a pantheistic worldview. Mm-hmm. And I, as a minister of the gospel, look at it and I see it. This is going to destroy your life. It's sin. You've got to understand sin separates you from God and it can take a hold of your life and define who you are. So I'm going to speak to it because I love you and I'm going to speak the truth in love. So we can even use sexual sin in general, which can be a very wide spectrum. And the tolerance right now that we know that the world has historically constantly come back to a place of tolerance around all types of sexual depravity, but we're seeing it in this season becoming more and more tolerant within the church. And can I interject this? It's not just tolerance, it's promotion as well that's that's going on in the society. Yeah, correct, correct. You're you're correct. And that's even happening now. I'm, you know, reading and listening to church leaders that are promoting, I think that even even by using language of tolerance, you promote. And, And yet what we find when we actually get into the Word is like, it's really difficult to read much Scripture without there being a conversation around sexual depravity. It's constantly coming back to it. You know, right. people say to me all the time, Pastor Jim, why do you talk about sex so much? Right. And I'm like, believe me, I wish I did not have to, because it is not one of those things I want to sit around and talk about. But, and the language is really strong and, and, and right. harsh. Um, I, I guess, is it, is it, uh, is it because the society is having an influence on our ministers to such a way that they're compromising? Or is it that they have not actually discovered and is it compromise from a position of having been firmly grounded originally? Or is it just a reality that just many of our ministers have never really had a grasp on what it means to to be a minister? Yes, I'll, I'll try to not make this a long answer, but coming from the outside. Yeah. Like I was mentioning yesterday in our ministers' meeting, looking from the outside, being away for 20-plus years, coming back and see a a totally different approach to ministry. Mm -hmm. I believe, and it's even in evangelical churches, we built a different foundation. Mm -hmm. It used to be a biblical approach to evangelism and discipleship. Repentance of sin that leads us to faith in Christ— leaving that life and coming into the body of Christ set apart for the glory of God. And a whole different foundation was laid with church growth. 
and the mention that the man that you mentioned before, the mm-hmm. Rob Bell, mm-hmm. the Ted Haggards, other individuals, Willow Creek, uh, Rick Warren, different philosophies started developing based upon church growth that put the emphasis on the individual. And they used to say, well, we're not going to be like the old-time church that preached hell, judgment, and about coming to Christ and that you're going to hell if you do not leave that life. Mm -hmm. And they started laying a different foundation. We're just going to love people and accept them and bring them into the church. They weakened the understanding of the body of Christ to bring them into the church without repentance and slowly we're going to see lives transformed. Right. The problem is that's not scriptural. It goes against the ministry of Jesus. It goes against the ministry of all the Old Covenant and the apostles. Mm -hmm. They preached a message of repentance, faith in Christ, that we're saved by that faith in Christ, and we're turning away from that sin, and they preached it on the forefront. Right. We're trying to do it on the back end, and by it being on the back end, We're destroying the concept of the body of Christ. We've allowed everything to come in in a lot of ways. And some of them say, well, we only deal with that when they serve, when they start serving in some capacity. And I go to those same churches. First of all, that's wrong Mm -hmm. because I'm part of the body of Christ before I start doing something within. Mm -hmm. But then in all those churches today, people are serving and they're living in a relationship sexually outside of marriage Mm -hmm. they're involved in all kinds of sin and they have become arrogant and they have for the sake of inclusion have brought people into the body of christ and they've hurt the body of christ and they've hurt those individuals where they start thinking i'm a christian i'm a believer i'm a disciple of christ but i'm living in sin at the same time Mm -hmm. jesus on the forefront not at the end was always downsizing you want to be my disciple. This is what it's going to cost you. And when he would say that, many of his disciples withdrew and did not follow him anymore. And after all those years of ministry, we don't even know how long he ministered mm-hmm. from his declaration as the Lamb of God and to his crucifixion. He is downsizing the whole time. And those disciples that were true disciples after the coming of God's Spirit upon those disciples, those 120, they turned the world upside down. We're approaching it completely different, a different foundation. And now that foundation, I try not to be hard, too hard on any minister because it is very appealing. People, pastors do love these individuals. It is coming many times from a pure heart. I love this individual. I see the pain that they're in. I see the bondage of sin. And I don't want to shun them. I want to bring them in, and I want to minister the gospel to them. However, they're going about it in the wrong way from my perspective, from a biblical perspective. I love them, so on the forefront, I'm going to tell them, just like Jesus did with the woman caught in the very act of adultery. They used that story to say, look at what Jesus did. What's his last statement to her? Right. Go Go and and sin sin no more. more. This lifestyle has to be broken in your life. I don't condemn you. I've come to bring you salvation. Now break this sin within your life. That's at the beginning of her journey with Christ. Right. Here, if she goes back to that lifestyle, 
she's going back to the very thing that Jesus instructed her not to do. She would not be a follower of Christ. She would not be a disciple of him. And so we're looking at this as we're delaying that message. Everything's getting destroyed. And that's within the evangelical church as well. That we have, an, and I'll go to a church and they say, we've added 2,000 people this year and everybody's excited. Most of it's church transfer. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's people that didn't want to be in a church because of some of these issues. Now they're back in the church. They're feeling great about themselves. They're accepted. And everything's getting destroyed in the process. And now we've come to a point of conflict in this philosophy. And it's falling apart because it's on the wrong foundation. That's how I look at it, Pastor Jim. Wonderful pastors love the Lord, wanting to reach people, but they've got to start looking back to the Word of God of how the body of Christ is defined, how I evangelize, how I disciple, and how we're going to reach this world for Christ. I think uh, when if somebody hears you break down the process from another country outside of the United States, and the problem that we've got is you're in another country and got another religion that you're a part of and you come into the church. I think from a Western perspective, it's as if like, oh, there's clear lines there. They are Muslim. They are Hindu. They are whatever, you know, their, their philosophy is. And so that's what we're asking them to renounce. We're showing them a different way. And so there's, that's the old man. The problem that I feel like we've got here is is that we've got another religion, pantheistic in nature, because of this view of doing away with moral absolutes, uh, that ultimately they're using the exact same language, but they don't believe the same thing. So then when we say this is how a Christian responds, there takes a level of offense. How, how do we navigate that process of communicating these truths to people who would go, well, you know, I am a Christian. Right. Well, we've got to rebuild a different foundation. Mm -hmm. And pastors, I believe, have to look at it and get back to what I feel the foundation is Christ and be careful of how you build upon that. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians that was having problems with immorality. Mm -hmm. In fact, they had to kick a guy out of the church because of that immorality. And if you look at the second letter, I believe if we read it right, that there was a positive response Mm -hmm. because because he says, now it's time to forgive. Now it's time to comfort this individual. We can read, if that is the situation, there was an act of repentance. Mm -hmm. Let let me talk about pastors in a pantheistic society overseas, say in a Hindu culture, because really what we're talking about is Hinduism. Right. Hinduism, Buddhism, Buddhism comes out of Hinduism. However, Hinduism believes that there is a God, all is God, and that one day in nirvana, Mm -hmm. when we escape this horrible life that we're in through this cycle of death and rebirth, we're absorbed up into God. Okay. Yet in Buddhism, it's actually atheistic. Nirvana is that we're absorbed up into nothingness. But the same philosophies except one doesn't have the caste system, one does. So we're more, I would say, a combination of both Hinduism and Buddhism, both pantheistic societies. Mm -hmm. How do you minister the gospel there? You never compromise biblical absolutes. 
never in one moment. So say a Hindu comes into the church. You give a salvation message. Every single Hindu comes to faith in Christ. I've never seen a Hindu not come to faith in Christ. They come down. They want prayer because they believe that Jesus is a way to God. He is a way. Mm -hmm. Why would a Hindu reject a prayer of God's blessing, God's salvation upon their lives? So they all come. Do you give them water baptism immediately? No. Do you give them communion? No. Because in their mindset, he is a way, he's not the way. And so they will come, and they will continue to come. They're seekers. You know, we have the seeker-friendly movement. They're seeking. They're coming in. But that pastor is very, very biblically grounded, understanding that person hasn't become a true believer. He's coming from a pantheistic society, and he's embracing whatever we can give him. Okay. So until that person gets rid of their idols, that's very important because they, those idols represent that Gunpati, Ganesh, Hanuman, and we can go on and on. They're also a way to God. And they will have a, a picture of Jesus in their house as well. And, you know, we don't even put crosses in buildings in, say, like a country like India. Okay. Because the Hindus will use that as an idol, and they'll start coming praying to that image. So you have to even be careful that you don't even have an image of something that they can come to and start praying to. So until they throw away their idols, mm -hmm. until they show consistency in their coming and getting discipled, and leaving that worldview and embracing a worldview, there's only one God, one Lord, one salvation, one way to know God, the forgiveness of sins. Remember, in a pantheistic society, this is important that everyone hears this, I've never had a Hindu come for prayer for the issue of sin. I've never had it. They always come for some type of blessing. So when they come and we give a, a, a response to the forgiveness of sins, they come down and I ask them, what are you here for prayer? Oh, I need prayer for my son. He's not doing well in school. Mm -hmm. I have stomach aches. I have this. My husband needs help because he's drinking alcohol and, and it's a problem and he's spending all the money. It will go on and on. In over 10 years, never had one come down and say, I have sin in my life. I need the forgiveness of sin. You know, that's funny because you're sitting here saying and describing that, and I'm sitting here thinking to myself now, that's pretty accurate even in the yes. in the church here. And I won't say I've never had that happen because I need to give some real thought to that. But definitely more than nine out of ten times, um, that's what prayer is built around. Yes. Even within the church yes. uh, here is a focus less on what's going, what they're actually wrestling with and what they need freedom from right. and more on what they can get. And it makes me think of Psalm 139. You know, David writes what's one of, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful portions of text that we get on the incredible nature of God. And he ends it, though, with God, find all the sin in me. Yes. You know? Right. Yeah. Keep, keep going. Yes. I just, I'm, I'm going to finish this yeah. thought because that Indian pastor or that pastor within that society will not consider them part of the body of Christ until they get rid of their idols. They've repented of idol worship. They have embraced Jesus Christ. And only then will they give them water baptism and only then will they give them the ability to take communion 
with the rest of the believers within the body of Christ. They've come out of that world. They've rejected it. Now they're part of the body of Christ. Now you say, well, how could the Indian church ever grow in that culture? They're exploding. They're becoming one of the greatest national churches in the world. And the reason why I believe is that they're growing, and they're not growing through church transfer because there isn't church transfer. There is a little bit sometimes in big cities, but this guy may have the only church in the, in the whole city. Right. So they're growing through first-generation pantheistic Hindu people coming out of that and coming to embrace Christ. And they're growing in such a number. They're over 50 million today, and they're going under severe persecution from the Hindu world that is saying, we're coming after you. Now, think about it. The Hindu world can accept anything. All roads lead to God. But they're coming after them. Why? Because they're saying there's only one way to know God. Which makes me think about an interesting perspective on, I guess, what would be rhetoric right now. But I think most Christians right now can see that there is a climate in the air in America that has the potential to bring the type of persecution to the church that either makes it difficult to practice the faith or potentially even illegal. And as you say that, you know, people, you know, uh, whatever, you know, I don't know if that's true, but I, I do think that there's the potential for that. I think we're making those strides to become, you know, move into that place. My concern off of even what you're sharing right now is that the church that we've got in America could not handle it. No. They would, they, it would, you would have massive exodus of people going, oh, it doesn't really matter. I can just do this at home by myself and not actually, you know, they're already not making change in their life. And so you get, you get what yes. I'm saying? And I think a lot of churches and pastors and ministers will embrace the restrictions that are coming from the government placed upon the church. So we're really looking, I believe, Pastor Jim, of rebuilding the right foundation within the body of Christ within this country that we're going to make an impact on this pantheistic society, this sinful world that we live in. We're not going to be afraid to use the word sin. We're not going to be afraid to use the word judgment, Gehenna, hell, eternity, separated from God. We're going to see it in a biblical concept, and there's only one answer, and that's turning from your sin to embrace faith in Christ and know that he is our righteousness, and it is a different life. If I'm a kleptomaniac mm-hmm. and I'm in bondage to it, mm-hmm. I can't continue to be in bondage to it. I have to turn from it to Christ. At all costs. At all costs. the way the Scripture lays it out. Right. I mean, the idea of removing your hand is right. pretty severe. Right. And dying to myself daily. Life's not about me, so the messages are no longer going to be 90% of how God can fulfill your destiny and how God can bring you to the point that you want to be. I'm a dead man. Yeah, I've died. He died for all, therefore all die. Mm-hmm. And so we die, and it's not about what I want. And I've got to deal with that sin. Faith in Christ through prayer, through fasting, through the body of Christ, through accountability— and that doesn't mean that all those desires to get something for nothing is gone from me. You know, it took a long—we're all born sinful. All of these things are sinful nature. It doesn't just have to be sexual. Yeah, no, no doubt. Right. And so we're born sinful, 
And so now we have to start dealing with that. And what a freedom there is when I can, through the power of God's Spirit, break the bondage of trying to get something for nothing in my life, stealing, going into a bathroom and still. I've seen people go into a, a, a friend's bathroom and steal toothpaste from their cupboards. So because it's a feeling, oh, I got something for nothing. And, and in, they're in such bondage. When that is broken in the name of Jesus Christ, what an incredible thing. The yeah. freedom they have just to live for God. So I think you laid it out really well that when the Bible being accurate and all its teachings, you know, when we tear that down, all the rest of this just kind of flows out of it if we can't accept that. And I, I think that as churches become more on point with this idea that, listen, this is God's Word, this is the non-negotiable for us, and we'll birth everything off of that foundation, there seems that there would have to be a turning of the ship in, in some regards, at least for those churches. And what, some, sometimes there are big ships. It's hard to turn a big ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. And, it, and it won't happen with, without some people saying, this isn't for me. Is there anything that you would say? So obviously, like if we would say that less than 2% of those who are claiming to be Christian believe these things, that's probably easily a, an image of probably a really high number even for, you know, used India as an example of people who would say, oh, well, the Bible is the Word of God. How would you How would you say that in those environments that you communicate the importance of that? Like, I get it. Like, we're saying this is what needs to happen. It's one God, one Word, one salvation. But how would we communicate the necessity of the view that God's Word is absolute. Yes, I think it's beyond just a, a systematic theology, a doctrinal statement that we have for the church. Uh, say your local body of believers. Mm-hmm. That's important, but the most important thing is that our pastors, our youth pastors, our children's pastors, they start teaching the Word of God and proclaiming it in original intent, in the context in which it was written. And there's such a passion that we're going to learn what it meant, and now we're going to see what it means for us today. And that process of doing that with whoever you're leading, whether it's a small group, we're not going to be studying all these other books. Mm -hmm. We're going to get back to God's Word, and we're going to, you know, it used to be everybody knew Romans, Galatians. Yeah. That's gone. But we're going to go back to Galatians, and we're going to teach it, and then we're going to teach Romans, and we're going to be in Amos, and we're going to be in Isaiah, and we're going to be in Samuel, and we're going to teach these books in the understanding this is the Word of God right? and what it meant and how it applies to us today. So it's more than just a doctrinal statement, and it has to go beyond, and some people may understand what I'm saying here, it has to go beyond a topical message that is preached every Sunday. It has to come back to the body of Christ, Right, that we're in the Word of God, we're devouring the Word of God, we're studying to show ourselves approved, our workmen need it not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Every small group, what are they studying? The Word of God, right. in context, from beginning to end. And that in itself, Pastor Jim, I think will create a culture. Mm-hmm. We're going to respect this. And everything that we do, this is our first thought processes. What does God say? And then everything's filtered through the Word of God. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, we're doing this series in the context of legacy. 
as I have now myself got a child that's in college, uh, all the way down to an eight-year-old. Who, We're praying for you. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, I appreciate it. The longer I live, the more that I realize that the legacy I want is for my children and my children's children is really contingent on who I am. And if I can't get these truths to be an overflow of my life, I'm going to have a really difficult time leaving a legacy. Yes. Let alone helps my children, much less the world around them. And, you know, our prayer has been, Lord, help us to raise our kids to love you twice as much as we do and to know you in ways we could never know you. And uh, we want to set that bar really high. And so I'm 41, and I am dealing with a lot of my own personal conviction about the way that I view the Word of God and the way that I—and and I, I would say less maybe about the way I view it, but more about the way that I have taught it. Because again, there's a lot of that that I've had to just kind of pull the mess apart and go, hold on, like, why, why am I doing this? Why am I trying to be relevant in this scenario to just continue to see the same fruit? And that same fruit is not repentance, but somebody who's, you know, coming into the church for a year, using their talents, not changing until they're just angry at me or angry at somebody. And then they're out the door again. And it's like, why am I, why have I bought into this vicious cycle that, I am seeing all over the United States and that church transference. And, you right. know, it's just like, ah. So now when somebody comes in, and I'm, I'm learning this real quickly, uh, you know, even after almost a decade of being a pastor, when somebody comes in and says, yeah, we used to go to so-and-so church, to start slow down then and go like, okay, what's the story there? Right. Um, and are we going to be a good fit? Because in the end, I can't have a compromise in the word because uh, it creates all these other compromises. And I would say COVID and uh, um, the, the combination of COVID and all of the different topics of protests that right. we have seen happening around our country and then the political climate, I feel like it's creating a shaking. I agree with you. That's really, honestly, I hate it every day. I mean, it drives me crazy, but I am really thankful for it. I feel like it's going to be good for the church. I feel like it's, it's going to be good for our church, uh, regardless. Be encouraged to, to realize that, that Jesus was always downsizing. And I know it. Like the moment you say that, the rich young ruler just comes right into my mind. And, hey, there's just a cost. And right. he said no. I think that my own personal faith needs to be stretched to be able to look at somebody and go, you know, I do love you, but there's a cost. That's the perfect example of what Jesus did. And Jesus is not downsizing for the purpose of being a negative individual. Not at all, no. But he got to to, uh, true understanding of what it means to follow Christ on the front end. And that's one of the saddest stories. And it caused a response from the disciples, if he cannot be saved, who can be saved? And so, when, and with God, all things are possible. And so when we look at it, he was getting to true discipleship, what it means to follow him. Those individuals, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, turned the world upside down. Right. So the end result was to reach this world with the good news and by downsizing to what really means to be a follower of Christ on the front end, he was building true discipleship. 
And that's what we've got to get back to. And I, and I agree with you. I believe COVID, all the protests, all the shaking has made the body of Christ, the evangelical body of Christ, really to examine a lot of these issues because of the conflict that's arisen within their own local assemblies. And, and to hear people say things like, well, we just don't know that it's safe to be in church right now, but they also talk about the club and all the restaurants and right. they are going to and I'm thinking y'all are all going to that but you're telling me you don't feel like it's safe to be in church like I have a I have a mental hard time I don't have a hard time with somebody who's like hey I have a physical you know right. condition they say I'm at high risk I'm engaged right I'm getting phone calls we're grabbing coffee I've got people like that I can respect that they're wrestling through whatever they need to wrestle through I can respect that but I have a hard time thinking like this isn't part of the shaking process when Church is the thing that they avoid, but nothing else in life they're avoiding. And uh, getting into these the this legacy of what are we leaving behind? I think we're seeing fruit right now that is a legacy of a way that we've been walking, and uh, it does make us look more and more like some of these pantheistic nations with people saying all types of things about what God's okay with that's contrary to the, His Word. Right. Yeah, that's powerful. Well. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. You did a piece with us on the history of Israel because yes. your wife has been a student there. So you've had some firsthand experience that I, I reference all the time with people. Um, I was with my mom and dad even uh, yesterday and was telling them about it. So uh, every time that we speak, you uh, uh, open my mind to something new and I, I end up digging in and been great. So I appreciate you taking the time to do this for us at City Church. Thank you and God bless. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at Integrity Global Missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.